Chapter Number Twenty Two of the Legends and Myths of Hawaii. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. The Legends and Myths of Hawaii by King David Kalakua the cannibals of halimanu a popular legend of the seventeenth century one although barbarous to the extent to which a brave warm-hearted and hospitable people were capable of becoming every social political and religious circumstance preserved by tradition tends to show that at no period of their history did the polynesian proper or the hawaiian branch of the race at least practiced cannibalism in their migrations from the southern coasts of asia to their final homes in the pacific stopping as they did at various groups of islands in their voluntary or compulsory journeyings the polynesians must have been brought in contact with cannibal tribes but no example ever persuaded them into the habit of eating human flesh or of regarding the appetite for it with a feeling other than that of aversion and disgust in offering a human sacrifice it was customary for the officiating priest to remove the left eye of the victim after the lifeless body had been deposited upon the altar and present it to the chief who made a semblance of eating it even as learned and conscientious an inquirer as judge fornander had suggested that the custom was possibly the relic of a cannibal propensity existing among the polynesian people far back in the past the assumption is quite as reasonable that the rite was either a simple exhibition of bravado or the expression of a desire on the part of the chief to thereby more strictly identify himself with the offering in the eyes of the gods several traditions have come down the centuries referring to the existence of cannibal tribes or bands at one time or another in the hawaiian archipelago particularly on the islands of oahu and Kauai, and harrowing stories of their exploits are a part of the folklore of the group but in every instance the man-eaters are spoken of as foreigners who came from a land unknown maintained local footholds for a brief seasons in mountain fastness and in the end were either exterminated or driven from the islands by the people for their barbarous practices it is difficult to fix even approximately the period of the earlier of these occurrences as they are mentioned in connection with ruling chiefs whose names do not appear in the chronological meles surviving the destruction of the ancient priesthood instead of being foreigners it is not improbable that the cannibals referred to in some of the traditions were the remnants of a race of savages found on one or more of the islands of the group when the first of the polynesians landed there this 
it may be presumed was somewhere near the middle of the fifth century of the christian era it has generally been assumed by native historians that the ancestors of the hawaiian people found the entire group uninhabited at the time of their arrival there the bird the lizard and the mouse with an insect life confined to a few varieties were the sole occupants of that ocean paradise with its beautiful streams its inviting hills its sandal forests its cocoa and ohia groves its flowering plains its smiling valleys of everlasting green but the interval between the fifth century and the eleventh between the first and second periods of polynesian arrival is a broad blank in the legendary annals of hawaii and the absence of any record of this circumstance cannot be satisfactorily accepted as evidence that on arriving at the group from the southern islands the polynesians of the fifth century did not find it sparsely occupied by an inferior and less capable people whom they either affiliated with or destroyed in some of the meles vague references are made to such people and ruins of temples are still pointed out as the work of the manahuns a half mythical race or tribe either from whom the hawaiians descended or with whom they were in some manner connected in the remote past to whatever period however many of these stories of cannibalism may refer circumstances tend to show that the legends connected with the man-eaters of halimanu are based upon events of comparatively recent centuries the natives who still relate fragments of these legends to those whom curiosity prompts to visit the cannibals retreat near the northern coast of oahu generally refer the adventures described to the early part or middle of the eighteenth century and a half cast of intelligence informed the writer that his grandfather had personal knowledge of the cannibal band although the sharpness of the details preserved indicates that their beginning could not have been very many generations back the occupation of halimanu by aikanaka and his savage followers could have occurred scarcely later than the latter part of the seventeenth century probably during the reign of kuli or his immediate successor somewhere between the years sixteen sixty and sixteen ninety five at that time oahu was governed by a number of practically independent chiefs whose nominal head was the governing alinui of the line of kakuhua of whom kuli was the great-grandson it will therefore be assumed that it was near the close of the seventeenth century that kalo alikahanaka with two or three hundred followers including women and children landed at waialua on the northern coast of oahu and temporarily established himself on the seashore not far from that place ten years before more or less 
he had arrived with a considerable party at Kauai from one of the southern islands which one tradition does not mention the strangers came in double canoes and as they were in a starving condition it was thought that they had been blown thither by adverse winds while journeying to some other islands they were horribly received and cared for by the people of Kauai, and for their support were given lands near the foot of the mountains back of waimea in complexion they were somewhat darker than the hawaiians but otherwise did not differ greatly from them either in dress manners modes of living or appearance they knew how to weave mats construct houses of timber and thatch make spears and knives and hollow out canoes of all dimensions they were familiar with the coconut and its uses and required no instruction in the cultivation of kalo or taro they were expert fishermen and handled their weapons with dexterity their language however was entirely different from that of the kauaians but they soon acquired a knowledge of the latter and in a short time could scarcely be distinguished from the natives of the island although known as kalo Ikanaka by the natives the real name of the chief of the strangers was kokoa the name of his principal lieutenant or adviser which was given as kaiukiwi by tradition was lotu or lotua kokoa was of chiefly proportions and his muscular limbs were tattooed with rude representations of birds sharks and other fishes his features were rather of the paupauan cast but his hair was straight and the expression of his face was not unpleasant the appearance of lotu on the contrary was savage and forbidding his strength was prodigious and he made but little disguise of his lawless instincts the wife of kokua had died during the passage to Kauai, leaving with him a daughter of marriageable age named palua tradition says she was very beautiful and wore necklaces and anklets of pearls her eyes were bright her teeth were white and the ends of her braided hair touched her brown ankles as she walked lotu was married but without children he did not like them and more than one it is said had been taken from the breast of kahokua and strangled the strangers brought with them two or three gods and made others after their arrival they knew nothing of the gods of the kauaians and preferred to worship their own to this the natives did not object but in the course of time they discovered that their taboo customs even the most sacred were not observed by the strangers their women were permitted to eat coconuts bananas and all kinds of flesh and fish including the varieties of which native females were not allowed to partake fearing the wrath of the gods the chief of the district visited kokua and requested him to put a stop to these pernicious practices among his people he promised to do so and for a time they ceased but the offenders soon fell back into their old habit of indiscriminate eating 
and again the chief visited kokua prepared to put his previous request in the form of an order the order was given but not with the emphasis de designed by the chief in making the visit for he then met paula for the first time and found it difficult to speak harshly to the father of such a daughter in fact before he left the chief thought it well to leave the matter open for further explanation and the next day returned to make it and to ask kokua as well to give him the beautiful palua for a wife father and daughter both consented and within a few days palua accompanied the chief home as his wife there at least it was expected that palua would respect the taboos she had violated before her coming and the chief appointed a woman to instruct her thoroughly in the regulations applicable to her changed condition she promised everything but secretly complied with no requirement the chief implored her to obey the mandates of the gods and sought to screen her acts from the eyes of others but her misdemeanors became so flagrant that they at last came to the knowledge of the high priest and her life was demanded her husband would have returned paula to her father but the priest declared that her offences had been so wanton and persistent that the gods would be satisfied with nothing short of her death and she was therefore strangled and thrown into the sea learning of the death of his daughter kokoa in his rage slew a near kinsman of the chief and made a feast of his body to the great delight of his followers they were cannibals but the fact was not known to their neighbors as they had thus far restrained their appetites for human flesh and avoided all mention to others of their propensity for such food their relish for however was revived by the feast provided by the wrath of kokoa and they were not sorry to leave the lands they had been for some time cultivating back of waimea and find a home in the neighboring mountains where they could indulge their savage tastes without restraint locating in a secluded valley in the mountains of haupu kokua and his people remained there for several years they cultivated taro and other vegetables and for their meat depended upon such natives as they were able to capture in out-of-the-way places and drag to their ovens suspected of cannibalism they were finally detected in the act of roasting a victim great indignation and excitement followed this discovery and the chief of the district called for warriors to assist him in exterminating the man-eaters but kokoa did not wait for a hostile visit his spies informed him of what was occurring in the valleys below and he hastily dropped down to the opposite coast seized a number of canoes at night and with his followers immediately set sail for oahu the party first landed at kawaioa but a kawaiian on a visit to that place recognized one of their canoes as the property of his brother and was about to appeal to the local chief 
when they suddenly re-embarked and coasted around the island to waialua where they found a convenient landing and concluded to remain two we now come to the final exploits of kokua and his clan in oahu it is probable that they did not remain long in the immediate neighborhood of waialua where the people were numerous and unoccupied lands were scarce sending their scouts into the mountains in search of a safe and unhabited retreat one of the exceptional advantages was found in the range east of waialua some eight or ten miles from the coast and thither they removed the spot selected has since been known as halimanu before that time it was probably without any particular name it is a crescent-shaped plateau of two or three hundred acres completely surrounded by deep and almost precipitous ravines with the exception of a narrow isthmus scarcely wide enough for a carriageway connecting it with a broad area of timberless tableland stretching downward toward the sea nature could scarcely have devised a place better fitted for defence and kokoa resolved to permanently locate there near the middle of the plateau he erected a temple with stone walls two hundred feet by sixty and twenty feet in height this structure was also designated as a citadel to be used in emergencies about fifty paces from the temple was the hali of the chief a stone building of the dimensions of perhaps fifty feet by forty it was divided into three rooms by wicker partitions and roofed with stout poles and thatch between this building and the temple was a large excavated oven with a capacity for roasting four or five human bodies at the same time and a few paces to the westward was the great carving platter of kokua this was a slightly basin-shaped stone rising a foot or more above the surface and having a superflice of perhaps six by four feet a little hewing here and there transformed it into a convenient carving table from which hundreds of human bodies were apportioned to his followers by kokoa who reserved for himself the hearts and livers as delicacies to which his rank entitled him the lines of the buildings described may still be traced among the tall grass and the oily appearing surface of the carving table known as kalos ipukai bears testimony to this day to the use made of it by the cannibals of halimanu the platter is now almost level with the surface of the ground and its rim has been chipped down by relic hunters but time and the spoliations of the curious have not materially changed its shape having provided the plateau with these conveniences and the huts necessary to accommodate his people kokoa next put the place in a condition for defence by cutting the tops of the exposed slopes leading to it into perpendicular declivities and erecting a strong building covering the width and almost entire length of the narrow backbone connecting it with the plain below 
there was then no means of reaching the plateau except by a path zigzagging down the upper side to the timbered gulches below or by the trail passing directly through the building occupying the apex of the isthmus of this entrance lotu the savage lieutenant of kauka was made the custodian and there he sat in all weather watching for passers the most of whom if acceptable he found a pretext for slaying and sending to the great oven of his companions his almost sleepless watchfulness was due less to a disposition to serve others than to his merciless instincts which found gratification in bloodletting and torture tradition says there was a hideous humor in the manner in which he dealt with many of his victims in allowing them to pass he inquired the objects of their visits either to the plateau or the gulches below they informed him perhaps that they were in quest of hala leaves of poles for huts of wood for surfboards of small trees for spears or of flints for cutting implements as the case may have been when they returned he examined their burdens closely and if aught was found beyond the thing of which they were specifically in search even though so trifling an object as a walking staff or a twig or flower gathered by the way he denounced them as thieves and liars and slew them on the spot in this manner many hundreds of people were slain and eaten but as no one ever returned to tell the story of what was transpiring at halimanu the cannibals remained for some time undisturbed but if their real character was not known their isolation and strange conduct gradually gained for them the reputation of being an evil-minded and dangerous community and visitors became so scarce at length that lotu found it necessary to drop down into the valleys occasionally in search of victims nor were these expeditions which demanded great caution always successful and when they failed lotu sometimes secretly killed and sent to the oven one of his own people with faces mutilated beyond recognition among these were all of his own relatives and two of the three brothers of his wife to escape the fate of the others the surviving brother whose name was napopo fled to Kauai. in physical strength napopo was scarcely less formidable than lotu but he was young in years and lacked both skill and confidence in his powers to supply these deficiencies and prepare himself for a successful encounter with lotu which he resolved to undertake in revenge for the death of his brothers he sought the most expert wrestlers and boxers on Kauai, and learned from them the secrets of their prowess he trained himself in running swimming leaping climbing and lifting and casting great rocks until his muscles became like hard wood and his equal in strength and agility could with difficulty be found on all the island and he skilled himself also in the use of arms he learned to catch and parry flying spears 
and hurled them with incredible force and precision. From the sling he could throw a stone larger than a coconut, and the battle-axe he readily wielded with one hand few men were able to swing with two. Having thus accomplished himself, and still distrustful of his powers, he made the offer of a canoe nine paces in length to any one who, in a trial, should prove to be his master, either in feats of strength or the handling of warlike weapons. Many contested for the prize, but Napopo found a superior in no one. During the contest, a strong man, with large jaws and a thick neck, came forward and challenged Napopo to compete with him in lifting heavy burdens with the teeth. The bystanders were amused at the proposal, and Napopo was compelled by their remarks and laughter to accept it, although he regarded it as frivolous. Fastening around his middle a girdle of cords, he cast himself on the ground and said to the man, Now, with your teeth, lift me to the level of your breast. Stooping and seizing the girdle in his teeth, the man with great effort lifted Napopo to the height demanded. The other was then girded in the same manner. He seemed to be confident of victory, and said to Napopo, as he threw himself at his feet, You will do well if you raise me to the level of your knees. Napopo made no reply, but bent and gathered the girdle well between his teeth, and raised the body to the height of his loins. Higher! exclaimed the man, thinking the strength of his antagonist was even then taxed to its utmost. My body is scarcely free from the ground. He had scarcely uttered these words before Napopo rose erect, and with a quick motion threw him completely over his head. Bruised and half-stunned by the fall, the man struggled to his feet, and with a look of wonder at Napopo, hurriedly left the place to escape the jeers of the shouting witnesses of his defeat. Now confident of his strength and satisfied with his skill, Napopo returned to Oahu in the canoe, which so many had failed to win. Landing at Wailua, he by some means learned that his sister Kaholekua, the wife of Lotu, had been killed by her husband. Arming himself with a spear and knife of shark's teeth, Napopo proceeded to Halimanu. Arriving at the house, barring the entrance to the stronghold, he was met at the door by Lotu. Their recognition was cold. The eyes of Lotu gleamed with satisfaction. No longer intimidated, as in the past, Napopo paid back the look with a bearing of defiance. Leave your spear and enter, said Lotu curtly. Napopo leaned his spear against the house and stepped within, observing, as he did so, that Lotu in his movements kept within reach of an axe and javelin lying near the door. Where is Kaholikua? inquired Napopo. There, replied Lotu, solemnly, pointing toward a curtain of mats stretched across a corner of the room. 
Without a word, Napopo stepped to the curtain and drew it aside. He expected to find his sister dead, if at all, but she was still living, although lying insensible from the wounds which seemed to be mortal. With a heart swelling with rage and anguish, he closed the curtain and returned to the door. He could not trust himself to speak, and therefore silently stepped without, in the hope that Lotu would leave his weapons and follow him. To this end he stood for a few minutes near the entrance, as if overwhelmed with grief, when Lotu cautiously approached the door. Advancing a step farther, Napopo suddenly turned and seized him before he could reach his weapons, and a desperate bare-handed struggle followed. Both were giants, and the conflict was ferocious and deadly. From one side to the other of the narrow isthmus they battled, biting, tearing, pulling, breaking, with no decided advantage to either. But the endurance of Napopo was greater than that of his older antagonist, and in the end he was able to inflict injury without receiving dangerous punishment in return. Both of them were covered with blood, and their marrows had been rent away in the struggle, leaving them perfectly nude. Although Napopo had in a measure overpowered his mighty adversary, he found it difficult to kill him with his naked hands. He could tear and disfigure his flesh, but was unable to strangle him or break his spine. He therefore resolved to drag him to the verge of the precipice, and hurl him over it into the rocky abyss below. Struggling and fighting, the edge of the gulf was reached, when Lotu suddenly fastened his arms around his antagonist, and with a howl of desperation plunged over the brink. Dropping downward to the destruction together, Lotu's head was caught in the fork of a tree near the bottom of the declivity, and torn from the body and Napopo, clasped in the embrace of the lifeless but rigid trunk, fell dead and mangled among the rocks of the ravine still farther down. Recovering her consciousness during the battle, Kaholikoa dragged herself from the house just in time to witness the descent of the desperate combatants over the precipice. Approaching the verge, she uttered a feeble wail of anguish and plunged headlong down the declivity, her mangled remains lodging within a few paces of those of her husband and brother. The conclusion of these tragical scenes was observed by a party from the plateau above. One tradition says by Kokoa himself. However this may be, the cannibal chief concluded that Halimanu was no longer a desirable retreat, and a few days after crossed the mountains to Waiani with his remaining followers, and soon after set sail with them for other lands. What became of the party is not known, but with their departure ends the latest and most vivid of the several legends of cannibalism in the Hawaiian archipelago. End of chapter 22 Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.